Hello, I am Joshua P. Warren, and this is Joshua P. Warren Daily. I have been both looking forward to and dreading this particular podcast because the topic is so truly overwhelming. You know, days ago, on November 22nd, the 54th anniversary of the assassination of President John F. Kennedy occurred, and um, it's still as controversial as ever, and I told you in a previous podcast that around the time of the anniversary of the assassination, that I would give you more information on my opinion and the things that I've learned, and if you consider how many gigantic books have been written on this topic, hopefully this will be sort of refreshing for you to get um something as condensed as the information as I am about to give to you. Uh, Of course, the price you pay is that there are certain little rabbit holes and wormholes and things that I won't be able to to dig into as deeply as I could, but that's why the Internet's there for you to do your own research if you like. Uh, I also want to point out, you probably know that I was very good friends with Jim Mars, who passed away this year. Jim Mars was the preeminent John F. Kennedy assassination expert. Uh, It was his book, Crossfire, The Plot That Killed Kennedy, that was the uh, primary source for Oliver Stone's would be JFK. And uh, I did indeed, as you can imagine, talk at great length over the years with Jim about this. But I want you to know that what I'm about to give you is not just a repeat of Jim Mars' ideas and theories. Uh, I have been to Dealey Plaza on my own uh, twice. I've done my own research. My wife's family's from Texas, and so that's given me an opportunity to spend more time there than a lot of people to do some of my own independent research. So the opinions I'm about to express are mine and mine alone, even though I, I think I can safely say that uh, um, generally speaking, what I think and, and what Jim concluded overlap in, in most cases. So that said, um, let's before we get into this question of who killed Kennedy, let's ask why was Kennedy killed? And the first thing that pops into my head to make this easy and condensed is that famous farewell address that was given in 1961 by President Dwight D. Eisenhower, in which he warned all of us very gravely of what he called the military-industrial complex. Now, this is a system that was especially booming and perfected in World War II, in which private companies in the U.S. would make bukus of money getting contracts with the U.S. government when politicians declared war or some type of war-like situation. And when I say, you know, private companies were making bukus of money, I'm talking about not just the big stuff like helicopter manufacturers and airplane manufacturers and jeep manufacturers and oil companies, but just this incredible cascade of products going down to, you know, tires and 
tents and socks and shoes and food and cigarettes and flashlights. And I mean, just like all the things it takes to sustain um, thousands and thousands of people living in another land and, uh, and pulling off these, you know, incredible tasks. So um, that's why, you know, the war is one of the most profitable endeavors in the world. Some could easily argue it's the most profitable endeavor. And so understandably, when you have these companies that make uh, billions and billions of dollars uh, off of supplying wars, but those people in those companies cannot create wars, they have to somehow persuade the people, the politicians, or those who work with the politicians, like other government agencies, like people within the military, etc., to uh, to get the paperwork done, so that you know they can legally take what they've built and and profit from it. And it's a double-edged sword because I am I do believe that there are certainly times when war is the only justified means. Um, to make the world a better place. I think the American Revolution was an example of that. Uh, but on the other hand, it is so easily abused. So, um, there was a man that you can read about easily who I think gave us some possible insight into what was happening with the military-industrial complex around the time that Kennedy was assassinated, and even much much longer before that, uh, there was a fella named Colonel Prouty. Uh, his last name is spelled P-R-O-U-T-Y. His name was J, or I'm sorry, L. Uh, Fletcher Prouty. And Prouty, he went out for years after the Kennedy assassination saying that he saw some very fishy things happening within the government at that time. Because Prouty was a, uh, a highly respected uh, officer if you, during uh, World War II, and he ended up working at the Pentagon. And Prouty said that I believe it was just you know days or just maybe a week or something like that, short period of time before the Kennedy assassination, that uh, while he was working at, at an office job in the Pentagon, one day, out of the blue, he was called to go into the office of uh, a general. And that general said, Prouty, we're sending you to Antarctica. And he says, what? He says, yeah, yeah, working on a special project down there with some nuclear uh, technology and we need somebody to go down there and keep an eye on it for the Pentagon for, you know, a few weeks. And uh, so Prouty says, well, I don't have any direct experience with nuclear technology. I, I'm not qualified to do that. I, I haven't been in the field for a while. And uh, the general says, doesn't matter. Uh, that's where we're sending you. You know, so pack your bags and boom, they got him out of there. So he was puzzled by this. He went to Antarctica and while Prouty was down there, um, he said that, you know, he he didn't he still didn't see why he was necessary. If there was a very 
small project going on. There was nothing exciting or crucial, and he couldn't really contribute anything meaningful to it, and it didn't make sense. So anyway, he was flying back by way of New Zealand, and he and his colleagues were sitting in a little cafe having uh, breakfast, and somebody got on a loudspeaker and said that the President of the United States had just been assassinated. And uh, he was, you know, just as shocked as anybody else. He couldn't get any information being there in New Zealand, and he had to wait until the newspaper came. And so he got one of these papers, and he said that this paper had a huge spread all about uh, Lee Harvey Oswald, and here he is holding the gun, and then he's got the manifesto papers, and I mean, just like this uh, incredibly thorough yet sort of cookie-cutter profile all laid out there about here's what happened, case closed kind of thing. And he said that immediately that reminded him of the kinds of intelligence and counterintelligence operations that they would do in the military and the kind kind of stuff that the CIA was doing very successfully during that period of time. But he said the weirdest thing is if you did the math with the change between the time zones that this may have actually been put together and printed before the assassination even occurred. Even if he was a little off on that, still, um, there was an incredible comprehensive amount of information there that had been thrown together. And that was when he got really suspicious. And then when he came back, he, um, he found that he wasn't the only person who had been sent off on what you might call a fool's errand during this period of time. So there were a lot of people who uh, just so happened to be conveniently out of the country uh, when this occurred. So he also said if he started really going back and thinking about all this in retrospect, that in 1945, before everybody knew about the atomic bomb, after Germany was defeated, it looked pretty clear that the Japanese were not going to surrender. And he said that uh, they, they were preparing in the military for a massive land invasion of Japan. And so they had put together, they got contracts with all these military suppliers. And he said that uh, they had put together a whole invasion package for thousands and thousands of men with everything they needed to go in and stage a major military operation in Japan. And then all of a sudden, here's this thing called the atomic bomb. And... The atomic bomb very quickly ended World War II with the surrender of the Japanese. And at that point, here we have all these guys, these military contractors, who have spent this incredible amount of money on these contracts to to create all these supplies that are just sitting there, but the contracts cannot be fully executed and fulfilled without everything being used. So what what did they do? He said that in 1945, 
they took all those ships and supplies and they sent them to Vietnam. So the Vietnam War, which would not start until, you know, officially around 20 years later, I guess, was already being planned at the end of World War II. Because at that time, they really didn't have any good reason to go into Vietnam. But they needed to move some of these supplies over into a part of the Asian world where they could be easily accessed. You know, this is what Prouty was telling us. And if this is indeed the case, what that means is that all these guys with these contracts are sitting there filling, uh, you know, twiddling their thumbs around saying, come on, guys. When are we going to make this happen? When are we going to get something, some action going here? And, uh, and working their way through it or toward it in the Korean War, etc. But he said, look, there was this incredible pressure for us to fulfill these contracts from the military-industrial complex and to do so by invading uh, or, or, or getting involved in a, a conflict in the area around Vietnam where we had all this stuff poised and ready to go and to get public sympathy for war, you know, you had to really push this communist threat, which as we know, escalated into the cold war. So essentially Prouty and others like him have been saying, uh, that, it, when when John F. Kennedy became the president, it was time. It was time to get this ball rolling, and and a lot of people had faith that he would be a warmonger because you know he was somewhat of a hero in World War II, PT one hundred nine and all that. And so um, he, however, really didn't want to get us involved in a war in Vietnam or other parts of Asia. And it seemed like that um, he was sort of on board with the anti-communist kind of warmongering thing when it came to Cuba, because the Cuba was close to the United States and they were being supported by the Russians. And so when Kennedy um, decided that the Bay of Pigs invasion should take place. It looked like, you know, he was on the right track to some of these guys. Like, we're moving in the right direction. We're going to get these contracts filled. We're moving toward the bigger war. But that became a huge failure, much to uh, everybody's surprise. And I think that, you know, the failure of the Bay of Pigs, it, it disenchanted um, Kennedy with, with the idea of, pursuing some of these, you know, larger conflicts that may not be necessary. He also thought a lot about the reality of the whole world being annihilated by getting into it with the Russians and all that. And so he, he just wasn't sold on this idea of going to war on a grander scale in Vietnam. And this became a big, big problem, and it ticked a lot of people off. Um in a lot of different arenas. You had Cubans who felt betrayed because they thought the U.S. was going to be right there for them 110% and see that whole um, Cuban revolution thing uh, work out in their favor. Uh, 
and uh, and they felt abandoned. And then you had all these these uh, uh, people with these huge companies with various financial war profiteering interests in the United States who were mad because it looked like everything fizzled out and they weren't going to get their contracts filled. And this sort of boiled into some kind of a plot to kill John F. Kennedy. Now, the funny thing is, um, even if you read just the Warren Commission, the official report at the time on on sort of what supposedly happened, um, even then, the element of conspiracy is still involved. You know, stories about Oswald being a a communist sympathizer and going to Russia and then getting involved with the Cuba thing and all that. I mean, even then, there is a conspiracy involved. Nobody says, well, this was a guy who just woke up one morning and decided to kill the president and went out and did it. You know, Everybody says, no, no, there's some kind of a conspiracy happening here. It's just, well, whose conspiracy do you, do you want to believe is probably the most accurate one? So... We are led to believe by individuals who had some inside knowledge, and I'm just using Prouty as one example here. We are led to believe that during World War II, there were some old friendships made between private, military, industrialists, and some of the key military figures who would later go on to work at the Pentagon and have various members at the CIA, and that some of those people were in positions to work together to orchestrate some type of uh, what really amounts to a very um, specifically created coup d'etat. And one thing that's really interesting about all this is during the period of time when the United States was trying to get rid of Castro, it is now a matter of public record that various members of the government, including the CIA, were working with gangsters. They were working with mafia, a lot of them around uh, New York, Chicago, because they were trying to assassinate Castro. And... I know that there have been these stories about, like, well, usually if you're going to do an assassination, you bring some guys in from some other country and have them do it, and then you get them out of the country. Well, that is not true at all, because you can't control somebody very easily if they're in another country. It's a big pain in the ass to go to another country. If this guy starts talking, starts bragging in a bar, you might not be able to shut him up. No, you want your assassins to live within your own country. It's very, very easy to nip that in the bud if you have somebody who starts spilling the beans on the land that you can control and influence. So consider that. So they like working during that period of time with some of these gangsters who had, uh, first off, a code of silence. Um, they, This was easy work for them for the most part. They were experienced already. They knew what they were doing. They weren't going to go boo-hooing about it afterward. And in fact, uh, Robert Kennedy, who was John F. Kennedy's brother and also the attorney general, he 
uh, thought this was uh, a terrible thing uh, that the United States was making these alliances with gangsters to go and commit these types of assassinations. He called it Murder Incorporated and said, we got to put an end to that. And of course, as you probably know, he ended up assassinated as well. But anyway, so th- this kind of gives you a sense of the why, the why this happened. The Kennedy was not doing a good job of fulfilling this plan that had been in place for, you know, almost 20 years or, or more to um, to get all these resources from World War II that weren't used in World War II shifted on over there and, and rolled into an even bigger ball of war profiteering in Vietnam, which to this day, the Vietnam War doesn't make a hell of a lot of sense to any of us, does it? And maybe that shows you why. It's about profit. So... That's sort of the why of it. Now let's get into the who of it. Who killed John F. Kennedy? Well, we know we know that it was orchestrated by some conspiracy. I just explained that to you. The most likely is that this comes from the, the military-industrial complex, and I'm certainly not going to name any names and, and that complex, because I might be wrong. I don't know everything. I'm not God. But I will tell you this. When you go to Dealey Plaza, and you go up to the, the little window there, it's a museum now. You go up to the window on the uh, fifth floor of the Texas School Book Depository building, and you look out the window, and you see things from the perspective that Oswald supposedly had that day. There are some interesting aspects that should stand out to anybody who's really got a good imagination. Okay, for one thing, um, I guess before I get into the window, I'll tell you that officially they say, uh, according to the Warren Commission and some subsequent reports, that Oswald fired uh, three shots and somewhere between five and eight seconds. A little slippery, but you know, uh, three shots on an old, cheap Italian rifle called the Manlicker Carcano, which is very clumsy, uh, which very easily jams, bolt action carbine type rifle, and that, um, you know, just knocking out three shots with any kind of accuracy on that thing in five to eight seconds would be impossible for most people under the most controlled circumstances. As a matter of fact, Jim Mars had a man liquor carcano and he would delight in handing it to you. He, he gave it to me on a number of occasions as well as, as my wife, Lauren, and said, all right, find something in the distance. And the gun was not loaded, but he'd say, find something in the distance, pretend like your life is on the line and you got to shoot this thing and hit that target. See if you can pop, you know, three of those off in six seconds. And it was basically impossible because the thing was so jammy and clunky. Now, I'm not saying it, it's impossible because uh, there have been tests done over the years in which once in a blue moon, you know, one expert out of many, many experts will be able to do it. Um but again, this is a guy who is not <laughs> – can you imagine how nervous you would be if you were about to do something like that? 
Uh, and then, but here, here's what makes it even more amazing to me for people to think that Oswald was the lone shooter. Okay, so Oswald, if you're looking again out that window, the window sits at the corner of a couple of streets. If you look out the window, you're looking straight down Houston Street. And so that day, November 22nd, the car that had Kennedy in it was driving straight down Houston Street toward the window. So what, and I mean, and, you know, it's going pretty slow. And so if you were in Oswald's position, your target is coming straight towards you. And it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Uh, Easier and easier and easier to hit every moment. Did he fire then? Nope. Nope. Supposedly instead, the, the car turned a left down Elm Street, which from Oswald's point of view was to the right. So now, as soon as the car makes that corner, which would have been the point at which Kennedy would have been right in front of him, as soon as the car made the turn, not only is now his target getting smaller and smaller, but there are also tree branches in the way. (laughs) So why wait till then? If he is calm and controlled enough under this extreme situation to be able to fire off three rounds and like and miraculously produced this effect um within five or six seconds why was he not also calm and rational enough to hit his target when the target was right in front of him why wait until it was off to going off to his right and getting smaller and smaller going in a weird diagonal position down a hill and furthermore um, now, this is really mind-blowing. When you go there today to that museum and you look over and you see the window where they're like, this is it, you know, this is where he knelt and did his uh, did this terrible deed. The window looks like it's fairly, fairly clear. But right after the, uh, the assassination, Jim Mars went there to that very spot, and he took a black and white photograph, which I believe is included, I'm almost positive it's included in one of his books. I think it might be the updated edition of uh, Crossfire. And at that time, there was this big black pipe that came down that corner of the building and blocked about a good quarter of the left side of that window. So, okay, for one thing, my God, okay, if <clears throat> if Oswald is in this window and he has a rifle and he is turning that rifle as far as he can to the right, look how limited the space is going to be on the left when you've got a pipe there. It's going to make it even weirder to try to get the gun position the way you want it. But furthermore, where'd the pipe go? 
Where did the pipe go? Why would somebody come in and remove that pipe? Maybe to make it look even easier. Because without, I mean, with that pipe there, Jim said they actually, at that time, the, the, the press had guys coming in who were marksmen saying like, well, I could get this shot if the pipe weren't here. I can't get my gun angled right. Okay. So there's reason after reason to think that, look, Oswald was involved. He himself said, I'm a patsy, I'm a patsy. So we'll never know to what degree he was a patsy. I think there's no doubt he was involved. And he probably was even in that window. But I got to tell you, when you go walking down Elm Street and you just start looking around and you get to the spot where Kennedy was killed, it I know you've heard it a million times, but I swear it looks like the perfect spot for that shot to have landed the way it looked like it landed to come from the grassy knoll. It really does. It looks to me... And it, it, you know, I know this is a cliche, but cliches become a cliche for a reason. It looks to me like that there was very likely a second gunman, at very least, on and around that grassy knoll. And who might that gunman have been? Well, I tell you who I think is a very good candidate for it. Go to YouTube. And type in the name James Files. And that last name is spelled F-I-L-E-S. James Files. This is a man who is in prison right now who says that he fired the shot from the grassy knoll that killed Kennedy. And the interview that he gives goes on for hours. And it's so fascinating that you really ought to listen to all of it. I asked Jim Mars what he thought of James Files, and Jim said, he goes, you know, here's the funny thing about James Files. He said, I have spent my whole life interviewing people and sizing them up and trying to get to the truth of things. Because, you know, Jim, he was a journalist and police reporter, and then he also was a professor of journalism, etc. And he said, James Files is one of those guys that I just could never get a read on. He goes, I'm just not sure what I think about James Files. And even that's saying a lot coming from Jim Mars. James Files claimed that he was kind of a punk kid who grew up um, doing little dirty jobs for the mob up around, uh, I guess it was Chicago, and he started working for a guy named uh, Nicoletti, who worked for a boss named Sam Giancana. And that, uh, now, mind you, this was right around the time when they, you know, the the, the military uh, industrial complex there, the CIA and all those guys, were, were tapping some of these mafia guys to go down there and try to kill Castro. So it would have been nothing for them to just slip right over into, well, let's move our plan for Castro onto Kennedy or something along those lines. Um, James Files is a very good candidate. 
And James Files said that he did indeed work with Oswald on this, um, and that Oswald did fire some shots. Uh, and you really have to listen to the guy's whole interview yourself to get, you know, the big picture. But I found here, as I've been talking nonstop here about this, there are so many little avenues and alleyways that, you know, I want to break off and go into to get deeper into this or that. But there's no need for me to do it. Because it, read some of Jim Mars' books, read about Colonel Prouty, watch the James Files interview. If you do all that, and especially if you go to Dealey Plaza and you go to the museum and you get in the window, I think it will become clear to you that every president gets threatened by wackos. But when John F. Kennedy got his head blown off that day in front of so many people in broad daylight. Something truly extraordinary and horrible happened to this country. And I believe it was achieved by a small network of people who were working together to sign some documents to get some military contracts, uh, contracts fulfilled, and they enlisted the help of the mafia to oversee the actual assassination, and you have this overzealous weirdo named Lee Harvey Oswald, who was set up to take the fall, even though he did play a role but that's why he was very quickly killed. And we all know that Jack Ruby, he had a lot of reasons to participate in that because Jack Ruby not only was involved himself with organized crime, but uh, he was soon to die from cancer. And the I believe he thought that his family would be well taken care of after his death if he participated in that. That's a different story. So I guess that's the best I can put it in a nutshell for you. Um, I don't think that any of us will ever necessarily know all the facts and all the truth. But what I found is when it comes to these types of stories, the way these things are covered up is by information organizations putting 10 or 15 or 20 different versions of the truth out there. And then you just get exhausted and throw up your hands because you don't know which one to believe and who has the time to be digging into all this anyway. And, uh, and then even if you do, what's the reward for you really? You just exhaust people and you move on and you make them think about what they're going to have for dinner that night. And, uh, you know, what's on their DVR. All right, my friends, hope you've enjoyed that. Hope you found that enlightening. Um, and maybe if you've wondered a little bit yourself about the John F. Kennedy assassination, but you've seen too much, you don't know what to think of it, you can at least take my personal experience and glean something from that. Um, this is what happens when you get out there and you have access to the resources that I have. This is the conclusion that you might draw. Uh, hey, 
this is called Joshua P. Warren Daily. It's short. It's free. I do one every day. And if you want to listen, go to joshuapwarren.com. Click the link to the top, and you can subscribe through iTunes or uh, Stitcher. Uh, it's on uh, TuneIn. Um, there are all kinds of different ways you can listen, or you can just follow me on Twitter, and uh, that's at Joshua P. Warren. And I will post uh, on Twitter. I'll tweet when I have a new one most of the time as well. So thank you for listening, and thank you for staying curious. And I will talk to you again soon.